2: Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is Will Young. In 2002, I remember fighting very dodgy Wi-Fi in a tapas restaurant in Clapham trying to vote for Will in the final of Pop Idol. He was up against, of course, Gareth Gates. And even though I'm from Yorkshire and Gareth is too, I felt a little bit disloyal, but I had to vote for Will. So you could say I've been a fan for, well, almost two decades now. And that show was seminal, clearly. Winning it propelled this nice young man from Oxfordshire into superstardom. Brit Awards followed and even a nomination for an Olivier Award as he starred in Cabaret. But Will's life has not been a straightforward, smooth trajectory of success. And tragically, his twin brother Rupert died in 2020, aged just 41. It was a troubled relationship for a lot of their adult lives because of Rupert's challenges, but later on Will would say that they'd come to a point where they had their best relationship for a very long time. I want to talk to him about that and how, of course, it's informed his own mental health journey, something on which he's spoken about quite strongly. He came out as gay after his pop idol win before a national newspaper kindly outed him, but he was already very comfortable with his sexuality. So there's that part of midlife I want to talk about as well. Solgar sponsoring today's episode, you know what they look like, those gorgeous brown glass bottles with the gold top, the gold standard in vitamins and minerals for over 70 years with something for everyone. OK, let's go chat to Will.
0: Will Young, it's so lovely to see and hear you. How are you? Well, I was worried for you on Friday. Tell me more. Um, because I thought they've plonked you and the guys next to a very noisy box... In Cardiff, <laughs> and I thought, God, they're doing a good job ignoring that raucous crowd next door. That's
2: where I'm in my element. I love, I love that whole live broadcasting thing. When the stadium's got seventy thousand, the more the merrier. That's, oh right, you know. oh so
0: it was okay. I just thought because these are my thoughts. I so, so I'm a big, I'm a big sports fan, big rugby fan, and I was watching and I thought. Now normally they've probably got all the TV stations like lined up along the same kind of boxes, and I was like, but clearly they've put them next to a corporate box. Well, we were next to corporate boxes.
2: And because domestically, we we do Wales' home games and Scotland's home games. We're the only domestic broadcaster there. And it was this was the Wales-France game, just for those who are, very uh, good are game. listening. And uh, very, very good game. And the French usually do it from somewhere else in the stadium. And so we weren't anywhere near any other broadcasters. But we do ours as close to the action as possible because I just love that whole kind of... It's almost like the the crowd are your 16th man as a, in a broadcasting kind of way, mm. do you know what I mean? Because they, they add so much to it. I imagine in a tiny way, it's a bit like when you're performing, right? You get energy from your, your crowd, don't you, from your audience?
0: I do, yeah, and it and it makes a difference if, if they're not an energetic audience. Sometimes it's it's like, you know sometimes I think, oh, God, do I need to put a mirror up in front of them to check they're still alive, (laughs) you know? Well, you just automatically think you're doing something wrong. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. And I have to sort of, like, remind myself that people react differently. And also, like, I'm not a huge laugher. So let's say if I go to the theatre, unless something really makes me laugh, I don't laugh that much. So I'm probably like that audience member that someone who's if they're acting, they're probably thinking, Oh god, he's a bit miserable. You know, so I have to remind myself, well, I'm an audience member as well. So just because they're not reacting the way I might are you melancholy or are you just difficult to please? I'm difficult to please. I am also I am also melancholy, but I am difficult to please with my humour. Perfect combination for any comedian trying to entertain you. <laughs> yeah. But 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 I, you know. I rarely find things that funny, but if someone's really funny, then I'm in.
2: What do you find funny? This is going, by the way, nowhere near the direction I was intending it to at the top.
0: But what what do you find funny? (laughs) Um, Okay, I'll tell you. I mean, I think my family are very funny. Um, So that's handy. A sense of irony, um, which I think can be really specific in the UK, actually. And a sense of the absurd, I Mm -hmm. absolutely love. um, And that gets me. Yeah.
2: And uh, so are you laughing at your family or with your family, just to be
0: clear? Oh, no, very. Well, depends. <laughs> Both. <laughs> depends on the minute. <laughs> and the other thing I think we need to establish
2: is where you're broadcasting from today, because if ever there was a loft that said
0: loft, it's this.
2: I don't think I've seen one that is more loft-like than the one you're currently situated
0: in. Couldn't be more loft-like. It's not pretending <laughs> to be any. There's, there's even two boilers, one which... Actually, I don't even it doesn't even do anything and it's just here. I can't get You've it. out. You've also got framed pictures
2: behind you, and I'm wondering if that's a Dorian Gray reference. You know, did you deliberately put those there? Ooh, no. Because this is
0: midlife. And then we're So I actually I do I have a framed picture of the Queen that was taken in the fifties by Terry O'Neill and it looks and she looks like sort of Elizabeth Taylor. And then I've got um I've got a framed poster of myself. Um <laughs> I don't have any pictures really of me around the house because I just in the attic. Yeah, just in the <laughs> attic because I think it's really naff. So, any pictures I do have, you don't really know it's me. So, but I do have like, you know, a lot of my stuff up here. And then during lockdown, when I eventually got back to England, because I started in Los Angeles, got back, my brother, who was still alive then, he had put up this cladding in my loft. And I thought, right, let's turn it into a studio. And so now I have my studio and there's a little piano to my left. And I absolutely love it. I love
2: it. Have you got proper stairs or just like a ladder? No, I've got a ladder.
0: A ladder. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And do you you pull the ladder up when you're actually really working hard?
0: Um, No. I mean, also up here, it's the quietest place because I have a big dog who makes a lot of noise. So Domino's probably on my bed underneath me, and I don't think he's snoring because we can't hear him.
2: I want to talk about your animals, well, your dog, (laughs) and I I want to talk about your love of of animals, and, of course, I want to talk about your brother as well. But just going back to something you said at the beginning, talking about your love of rugby, Mm. while I was looking up things I thought I didn't know about you today, um, I I didn't realise how quick you were. You were like a brilliant 400-metre runner when you were at school. You could have been an Olympian. No,
0: I couldn't have been an Olympian. I was good, um, but I wasn't brilliant. Uh, uh, but I was good. Um, and it meant that I was quite a good winger because I was a 400 meter runner. I had consistent pace. Speed endurance. I had speed endurance. So I, I wasn't Louis Rees-Samit. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I was kind of once I went. So I was pretty good. I was kind of an all rounder, actually. And so was my brother. But sport for me, I mean, Wellington College, which was the school I went to from 13 to 18, was a big rugby school. It always was. You know, still is, yeah. Still is. And my dad was captain of rugby at Wellington. So we came with quite a lot of baggage. <laughs> but you know what? N- Reputation. N- oh no, no, no. I'm happy to talk about baggage. Normally I would say baggage, but because my dad is so cool, he didn't really care. But it gave us a bit of cachet. So like we were like, right. great, you know. Um, he didn't really care at all. He said he wasn't even that good, he was just tall. <laughs> he just got picked because people could see him. Yeah, and he um, was never pushy, <laughs> never pushy. You know, not one of those parents that ever was like, you must do this, you must do that, which I think's just amazing, actually. Um, but he loved coming to watch us play rugby. Loved it. I say that there's nothing that gives
2: me greater joy than watching my kids do sport. It really is the best. It's so... I'm kind of hanging on, clinging on, because they've got another year and a half at school. So you're clinging on to these moments, just really trying to savor them, and it's fantastic. I love it. Do you think it's weird if I carry on
0: going to the school when they've left and watching other people's kids? Do school? I mean, I think <laughs> I think we need to have a plan for that. I think if it is <laughs> yeah. you know, let's just plan it in advance, and then we. Know. So
2: you, you and your brother were at school the whole way through. Yeah, you didn't have a period where you didn't go to. You went to separate schools. Always together.
0: Always together. Yeah, through from primary where we had (laughs) we went to this amazing school called kingsbury hill in marlborough in berkshire such a pretty place marlborough and um it's not there anymore and um the headmaster um suspiciously had a yellow lamborghini um which (laughs) expensive school (laughs) well which it then turned out i think there was some embezzlement going on somewhere um and, and and you know i i I believe that's fine to say that, you know, but I just love the idea of these innocent kids going, oh, what lovely, smart, very expensive car. Um, and then we went from there to a prep school from seven till 13. We, we were the first day boys ever at that prep school with another lovely guy. Um, and then we boarded from nine and then we went to Wellington uh, from 13 to 18, yeah.
2: Did it seem young boarding at nine?
0: It was extremely young and it was a horrific mm. experience. Gave me a, you know. It's Even with a twin brother alongside you? Yeah, I mean, and we had like, we had very strong family connections to the school. We, My grandfather was a governor. They used to live in a massive pile and they sort of donated. I mean, they were really posh, you know, and they donated like the slates from their stables to the school. And <laughs> my uncles went there and my uncle taught there and, We learnt to swim in the school pool before we went, you know, it was my grandparents then lived right next to the school. So I think that's what made it so bad for us because my parents didn't have much money, even though my grandparents had a lot of money. My grandparents, my parents didn't at that stage. You know, they, my dad worked really hard to get us to this school and they were doing, they really thought it was the best for us. They didn't know what was going on at the school. And unfortunately, it, it it was an experience for myself and Rupert that was really abusive. And, it you know, it really did affect both of us. Gave me PTSD, you know, I still get flashbacks. But I've done a lot of work on it. And, um, you know, I'm pretty much out the other side.
2: Mm, you've, you've talked about PTSD and trauma. Mm, um, yeah. That, and that comes from that period.
0: Very much so. Yeah, I would say that was the biggest because it was, there's so many different definitions of trauma, you know, but pre continuous exposure for for a number of years to a type of abuse you know or a type of state it, it is it can create often very complex trauma so you can get complex PTSD but I've, I've become now very kind of nerdy about it there's a great saying about trauma which is you don't look at what's wrong with the person you look at what happened and it's such a shift in perspective so I try and remember that whenever I meet anyone. I think, well, what happened to you? Because mm-hmm. something must have happened.
2: Can you tell when people haven't dealt with that trauma? Do you see signs well, in their behaviour? A bit, yeah. I'm a bit witchy. Mm. <laughs> and do you resist the urge then to try and intervene and help them and become their saviour? Yes, savior? yes
0: I, I've done a lot of work on my own codependence. You know, actually, I try and be a very good listener and I just try and model things from my own experience you know just I just speak from the eye position because that's mm-hmm. really all that I have you know. Well, also, you're
2: so, you've been so brilliant at talking about it and also talking about what happened to Rupert, I think, that, and, and actually saying we're not doing enough. We're not, you know, and, you know, we need to do more in these areas. And, and, and that's really powerful when you've got
0: a platform like you have. Well, I hope so, because, I mean, otherwise, you know, there's a few reasons why I do it. One, one is, is slightly from an anarchic place. None of my family really fit a mould. And Mm -hmm. so I like to kind of push that being a pop star and other things that I do. I like to kind of push it from a rebellious point of view and go, oh, I'm not going to be like, yeah, I'm perfect. I like to say, look, this is the deal. And then also, I actually firmly believe that if I'm if I'm pretending and lying, it's actually very damaging as a famous person, because I'm I'm not spreading a message that's going to be useful to anyone, you know. So I think, well, why not? be of some use. I try and have some containment and don't, you know, I don't talk about everything. I mean, I'm not going to go into the minutiae of my health problems. <laughs> but anyone who wants to hear that?
2: Well, it is a, a podcast about midlife. So I suppose when it comes to health, you know, and you're in this period of life now, the, your, the mental side of your health is obviously as important as the physical side of your health. And the two are so interlinked anyway. And that sounds like something that you've worked out a while ago. What, what kind of yeah. What kind of age were you when you first went for therapy. Twenty six, I think. She's quite young. I mean yeah, I mean I was with you there. I was about twenty-five when I first had some counselling about my brother dying. And I think, you know, the earlier the better,
0: really. <laughs> but um Well I, I yeah. I I I'd had a big change in terms of life. So from twenty two to twenty six, you know, I became a pop star and a massive pop star. And very quickly. Very quickly. And then an actor and And then I just realised I wasn't very happy. So someone said, you need to go and see this woman called Lois Evans. Amazing woman, New York, Jewish, perm, twin set and pearls, used to point at her Tiffany earrings and go, you're paying for these. You know, (laughs) she was like, she's now no longer with us, which is a real shame. But um, she and the first thing she said to me was, if I was your boyfriend, I'd dump you. And the second thing she said to me was, has it ever occurred to you that sometimes you're not a very nice person? And I just thought, she's a keeper. Yeah. You know, you're an absolute keeper. And she would, I mean, she really was on my case. <laughs> she was so on my case. But she was hardcore. Yeah. And At the time, you, she was the person you needed. Definitely. And I finished with her. You know, I'd done all the work. And i we had this sort of final session. And I remember saying to her, oh, Lois, couldn't you have just told me everything at the beginning? <laughs> you know? I was like, I know it doesn't work like that, but really, you would have saved a lot of time. <laughs> she was like, it doesn't work like that, William.
2: And also she can't buy more Tiffany earrings if you do it in one session, so, you know. She got a hell
0: of a lot of Tiffany <laughs> earrings out of me.
2: So with your brother, you're going through this journey. He's obviously on a different journey in life. Um, and he presumably was exposed to things as a child as well.
0: That Yes, he was very, um, I mean, Rupert, you know, he was picked up by his throat and slammed against the bookshelf at at the school. He suffered more physical abuse than I did. I was quite crafty and very good at charming people. So I could, I could, that's how I remained safe. It became a very good way of me surviving, but it stopped working for me as a tool when I got older. But, you know, Rupert, so Rupert did, even though we went to the same place, he did also experience his own individual traumas. And yeah, he, he, he really struggled. For people who don't know, you know, Rupert was an alcoholic and he, my twin brother, and he ended up taking his life not the summer, just gone the summer before. Yeah. August 2020.
2: 2020 and yeah. So, so just over 18 months ago as we speak now. So that's really still quite fresh. The grief's still quite fresh.
0: It is. But you mentioned earlier, you mentioned about me saying, you know, there needs to be more help. You know, what was very interesting with Rupert is, he kind of slipped through the net and i realized when i went to the to so the coroner's report uh, the coroner's court i went and was asking a lot of questions and i deliberately made a statement then because i thought i suddenly started hearing all a lot of very similar experiences of people who had slipped the net and just how ill equipped you know we are in this country for mental health and do you think he was savable um, then i think if I didn't think that it wasn't going to end for him, I'd now be suing the hospital. But I'm not. So yeah. I think, you know, but I worry about others. Yeah. You know, he'd had 50 suicide attempts. There might be that one person. But it'll all come out in this, in this project.
2: And that's later this year. Yeah. I'm not
0: talking specifically
2: about Rupert, but about what experiencing death in midlife does about your own mortality and you're kind of looking at your own life. How's that affected you?
0: Oh, I've got loads to say about death. Well, years ago, I went to see uh, through a friend, and we are now friends, and I still see her, a shaman called Joe Bowlby. And um, I used to be very scared of death, and I used to, but it wasn't a major problem. But if I thought about death, I'd like sink into the sofa and be like, oh my God, this existential angst is too much. And I went to see Joe for something else. And I had this sort of regression. And then I'm not scared. I haven't been scared of death since.
2: So th- that, ex- that shamanic experience shifted your mindset, energy, something that was there about death?
0: Everything. I have a theory that our terror of death restricts so many things of us because we don't want to think about death. So after I saw Joe, I kind of like embraced death. And actually, when people have passed, like when my uncle passed of cancer, it was just like a massive celebration Rupert's a bit different because it's, it's a weird kind of pain because of his suffering sort of on earth. But I have people that I've lost at like my godmother up here. Actually, I've got a wall, I can't turn it around, of people that I've lost. And I look at them and I just feel so happy. So I don't really mind about my own mortality and I have no idea what's going to happen. Do you look after
2: yourself though? Or do you look after yourself any more than you ever did because of that Was it not changed your kind of lifestyle habits?
0: i have got better actually and actually i saw a doctor um when i was 41 and she said now you're into midlife this is when the between 40 and 50 is when you really need to look after yourself this is the import this is where it will pay dividends so i've now stopped drinking totally yeah i did that before christmas uh and I, i feel really good um and then my next thing is I've sort of halved my smoking and I'm not long off stopping smoking now. So, and for me, that's...
2: Was that your big vice? I'm a
0: big smoker. Well, smoking and beer, hmm. you know. Love. I mean, my my dad's side of the family would Breakspear Brewery, which is a Henley Bitter. And my mum's side was Pims. <laughs> so they're like, I don't, you know. But yeah, so I think I'm doing pretty good at, Looking after myself.
2: What about exercise?
0: Oh, I love well Pilates. More, I love, yeah, yeah. I, I just love Pilates. I used to do a lot more ballet and contemporary. I Haven't done that for for a while, probably because of COVID. And I just got out of the thing. Mm-hmm. I do have a like an exercise bike, one of those jobbies, which I kind of do sometimes, but it gets my hip flexors.
2: That would counter the cigarettes a bit though, as well, wouldn't
0: it? If you got on that. You know what? It actually really does. And then I go running, but I tend to I go running in the countryside. So when I go down to Cornwall, I run it. I run in Cornwall.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm an April to October outdoor runner. Me too. It's mis- I live a little bit out, and it's too yeah, it's too muddy, and I can't even you know I slip over. And I think no, I'm doing this in nice weather. And going back to as I mentioned just there how quickly your fame came because pop idol was you know this revelation of a show. You know these people came from nowhere to being you know kind of right out there as you did. 13 million people, I think, watched your final, didn't they? You know, huge numbers. Everybody knows who you are. National news story. It's an extraordinary way to become famous. And everybody has an opinion, of course, on on you and, you know, what they think of you. How,
0: How did you mentally deal with that? And how did it shape you? I was so focused on being a singer that I, I mean, I was, like, fiercely focused. So I just remained determined as soon as I won I thought well you've got five years to earn a reputation you can't demand it you have to earn it so you've got five years this is the beginning of that and so I managed to like block out the noise mm-hmm. and when things did let, let's let say hurt like hearing some of my idols who have opinions of the show you know say things about the show and me i would be like oh my god that's really sad because I love their music um I still knew for some reason deep down that it it was all noise so all the noise that came with the fame was kind of blown away by my focus on I need to do great music
2: so it was always the main thing you know that's that expression isn't there for, never forget the main thing and the main thing for you was always the main thing. 100 percent still is. Well, that was going to say that, that the only way you're going to ever have a long career like you've had is if you stuck to that, which you clearly did. But in terms of the genre, and you look at like X Factor Followed, and do you feel like sometimes I think young people who have grown up with that have got a very different attitude towards, you know, this, this immediacy, and they want everything very quickly. And that was also, that was the start of that. And ironically, you didn't have that
0: attitude. No, I think for people of our generation it was new I mean there would always been talent shows but it was bigger shinier you know one one artist big record company deal you know it was all that so it was sort of new and I guess it's it was almost like the instantaneousness of tv before then you got like social media and things like that so there was an element of like immorality about it I think And and I, but my biggest sadness is is how people were treated in subsequent shows Mm -hmm. in different formats. And I and I think that I was very fortunate because I people didn't know what it was going to do, so they they couldn't even mistreat us if they wanted to because they didn't know it was going to be so successful. Once people knew, it became a format, and then it becomes something completely different. And I think it's amazing that certain people have managed to escape. Mm things being found out i mean if there ever was an ex- exposure on it it would just be enormous but it, it, there never will be and i've heard of about five that have been shut down there never will really? be because yes yeah, we too- think we're still you know we think we're in a thing now where powerful people and we've been through all that they can't abuse no so i i that's really pained me because i there's one thing i hate and i hate bullies mm-hmm. i hate i can't bear it i don't know why but I just can't bear seeing people bullied. And um, that's been the biggest sadness. But for me, I mean, it's just, was amazing. I was a politics student, openly gay, didn't play an instrument very well, that well, didn't write my own music, um, worked at a record company and wasn't, wasn't particularly cool and very well, you know, very well spoken. So like, how was I going to get a record contract? So for me, it was just, I mean, it literally was. We talked about mortality earlier. I will sit at my deathbed and go, in fact, as soon as I got a record contract, I thought, I cannot believe you're so fortunate enough to be able to say, oh my God, I did that. I got there.
1: Yeah.
0: I became a pop star.
2: (laughs) And uh, you you oh. are many things now. You, obviously, you've acted since. You've been in cabaret. You've um, obviously got your new podcast coming out, which is um, uh, based around mental health as well. You've become really well-known for talking about that. You've been able to shape your life in a way that, you know, seems as well to be really gratifying.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think, oh, gosh, William, can you just focus on one thing? But i I think find the joy. There's a friend of mine, he says, find the joy. So I just try and find the joy.
2: Do you think it helps being a gay man
0: that you can to
2: do that? Like if you
0: had 2.4 kids and a... Yeah, no, actually, that's a very good question. I, I There is something about growing up, being on the periphery and watching. I feel very fortunate that I have never felt I have to just go along on this tractor beam of life. You know, and suddenly it's like, oh, my God, I'm in a Renault espace and I absolutely hate, hate my wife. Do you know what, <laughs> what I mean? I'd mean like, oh, my God, what's happened? And I don't even know if I like my children <laughs> or the cocker spaniel. So I've never, like, got to there. Sometimes it's difficult treading your own path, but at least I know that everything I do, I am, I have thought about it and I am doing it not because I think I should be doing it. And so tell me about relationships then in midlife. Relationships have always been an area that I find hard. I know that relationships are not what Hollywood says. I know that. I know that people who've been married 40 years doesn't mean they're, like, having the best time every day of their lives. So I know that. But I think because of stuff that happened in the past, it's an area that has been harder for me. And and I think that I'm open to it with the right person. I think. Do you think you'd ever like to get married? If they were rich, yes. I think... (laughs) I think it has to be the right person. It's not something that's bothering you, though, clearly. Used to. No, used to. In my late 30s, it used to, because I thought, I want the kids, I want the house in the country, I want the husband, preferably a lawyer. You know, but then I realised life isn't a tick list. Yeah. And I don't tend to get that lonely sometimes, but not often, not often. Yeah.
2: So companionship, actually, is the thing that perhaps you crave sometimes,
0: is it? I think you're right. I think it's companionship. Uh, let's talk about your animals. I've got, yeah, a few. Yeah, yeah I've got a few. <laughs> well, <laughs> what have you got? Well, I've got Border Terrier, Esme. She was my first. And then I got a Dachshund. She got run over it last year. I mean, it was a shit year. Let's just put it that way. Then I was in Los Angeles, I fostered two dogs who are an hour away from being put down. They have kill shelters out there. There are two pit bulls. And where are they now? Domino's downstairs, probably thinking, "Where's my food?" And his sister is lives with my parents.
2: So it's technically, you've got three still then. Three, three. Technically three. Three. Yeah. You've also spoken about animal welfare and. Um, yes, animals. I chained
0: myself to a beagle breeding um, place in Cambridgeshire called NBA Acres. I think it's called. They breed puppies for testing. And I felt so helpless mm-hmm. that I drove up there and handcuffed myself to the gates. And I think people thought, shit, he's had another break. <laughs> but you but you were just doing something that you felt very strongly about, clearly. I felt helpless and I thought, I live in a democracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what am I doing? Get up there and use your fame. And it worked. So a dog's number one for you? No, they're all, I love them oh, all. Oh, love even, them all. <laughs> You know what? I even saved a spider this morning Did in the bath.
2: <laughs> well, spiders, I, I think that I, whenever I pick, I'm not scared of spiders at all. I'd rather pick it up and put it outside. But, you know, yeah. and whenever you save a spider, I always say, I wonder what they're thinking, <laughs> this giant person. I know, I happened. know.
0: They're
2: probably inside going, get away, you monster. <laughs> I know,
0: I know. But I was watching, I was watching the spider and I was thinking, why am I not doing anything? And so think, You're just watching on. it.
2: Just watching it. Yeah, so Come around. on,
0: William. Let it out the bath. <laughs> Will, can we bring
2: in uh, Nicola Moore? Hi, Nicola. Hi. Uh, Nicola, Hi, Nicola. Nicola's oh, no. been on Midpoint before. She went down very well indeed. And then I heard Nicola chatting to Dr. Miguel Mateus, who has um, talked about how we have these neural pathways that make us react in certain ways to certain foods. And actually, we might not if, this is, if I've understood this right, Nicola, we might not have a problem with some foods, but we've just trained ourselves almost to think we have a problem with certain foods.
1: Yes. Yeah, so what can be really interesting with food is that if you are particularly concerned about food, if you, are, you know, a lot of the clients I work with, they're worried about food, they're worried that they're reacting to foods or... So they think they've got allergies, some of them. They might think they've got allergies, but they also, you know, we've got so much information, haven't we, about what's bad, in inverted commas, what's good, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. We're bombarded with all of this information, which can actually create a bit of a stress response so we can be driven towards actually behaviours that we don't want to do that give us a bit of shame and guilt but we can't seem to do much about that and food is one of those big areas so it's, it's, it's fascinating really looking then at how you might just reframe a bit like Will was saying almost you know with the It's not the person, it's what's happened to them. You can reframe that in all sorts of things and you can do that with food as well. Will, do you have
2: any foods that you kind of would feel ever guilty for eating?
0: Oh, guilty? Mm. No. No. (laughs) I shove it all in. So have you got quite a good relationship with food? I think I do. Yeah, I actually think I do. Um, I'm I'm not sure if I have a 100% healthy relationship with my body. That's a different thing. Um, And I blame society for that mostly um but with food no I'm pretty I think I'm noticing more what my body likes Mm -hmm. probably since stopping drinking you know I mean uh, since i stopped drinking I've lost over a stone
2: really so that was a beer stone basically
0: that was a beer stone did did the beer come
2: with bad snacks though as well like if you'd had a few beers did you then yeah
0: That's it, you see. Haven't had any pizzas, haven't had any... mm, No, I had a burger the other day, but not on the whole. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But even that about the burger, though, isn't it? You shouldn't worry about having the odd burger. It's about dietary patterns over the course of a month, a quarter, six months, a year, and looking at how you just support yourself. But, you know, with the alcohol thing, what's really interesting is that alcohol, if you're drinking it quite regularly, it has an impact a bit on your microbiome, so the bacterias in the gut that are actually responsible for so many different things, including things like brain chemicals. So they actually have a role to play in brain chemistry, even food choices. So when we make a big change in our diet, and alcohol is a really big, significant change, isn't it? Your your gut will actually change. The long-term effects of that weight loss would be one from a calorific perspective, but also you've probably, without realising, had a big anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. impact because your gut microbiome would have really loved not having that alcohol go in.
2: What is it that's a problem from the alcohol for the microbiome? Is it the sugar?
1: It's probably the sugar. There's also research to show that alcohol can encourage more permeability in the gut. So our gut lining is one cell thick and these cells are all sort of stood together really proud and strong and they they govern what comes in and out. So they need to let things in. They need to let in food that has been broken down into microscopic particles to be used in the body to make brain chemicals or whatever it is. They are permeable. But we don't want them to be really, really permeable. That can open the door to more inflammation, ultimately. And alcohol seems to... We're talking about chronic alcohol consumption, really, but it can encourage more permeability of the gut. So that permeability has been shown to impact on overall inflammation. And there's also research looking at how that can then further impact mental health. So going back to the neural pathways, these can be changed? They can. This is the concept of neuroplasticity. So we have the ability to change the setup of the brain, these neuroconnections. But for many of us, our neuroconnections have been formed in formative years and our constant thinking processes and reactions to stress or whatever reinforce them over and over again. So let's say, for example, you actually become really fearful of eating carbohydrates because everyone's told you you shouldn't eat carbohydrates. So that actually creates a bit of a stress response and that in turn can change how you're even digesting your food and it can make you feel bloated. But it's it's the brain is controlling things to a large extent. So the food per se is not making you bloated. It's your stress responses. The stress response and the down regulation of your digestive secretions as a result. But what you can do, when knowledge is power, isn't it? So when you understand this, you can start thinking, OK, well, I'm going to look at this slightly differently. And it's not as easy as snapping your fingers and it's suddenly all being perfect but if you can start understanding the physiology of how it works and then start to look at food differently and start to have more of a you know looking at the benefits of what carbohydrates do and mm-hmm. the enjoyment you get from them or, or how they make you feel from a satisfaction point of view or whatever it feels a bit overwhelming to chip away at a, a neuropathway that's not so helpful for us it can be a bit easier to emotionally think I'm just going to avoid that one and start building a new, new one, one. Mm-hmm. I won't invest in that other one anymore and it will just start eroding it's like <laughs> a building that you're not going to look after anymore Nicola
2: thank you so much as always uh, you put it so brilliantly and uh, in those kind of bite-sized uh, <laughs> chunks that we can take away and um, hopefully I'll see you again on another yes, episode of Mid-point thank you at so some point. much take care bye bye <laughs> Your podcast, your new podcast. Yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about it. And uh, you said you don't do it in the loft. I'm disappointed about that. Well, you do it, You do it on the kitchen table. It Gets a
0: bit hot. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the wellbeing lab. So, so I did a. I. The idea is to try and educate mm. and really get rid of the shame that can come with mental health. I've deliberately chosen topics and practitioners that are not necessarily the most known topics or the sort of sexiest topics.
2: So you talk to therapists about
0: these various conditions? I talk way. to professionals, yeah, mm. about it. And we try and do like one topic and then what can you work on to make something better? So what's on the agenda
2: and, then? That, that- well,
0: like shopping addiction, um, sex. I speak to two sex therapists. Dissociative disorders, which is something that I have and it's, you know, not that known about. And what what is dissociative um, disorder? Well, dissociative disorders is... is c- can come from sort of high anxiety and you can either get what I have although it's got a lot better over years is is depersonalization so I often when when I first got it I didn't really I couldn't recognize my face in the mirror I didn't know who I was but I did know I didn't really know where I was I didn't really recognize people it was like a part of my brain the feeling part my brain had shut down but you can also have derealization which is when um it becomes more you don't quite recognise your body and space and time and you feel like you're in a movie. I've done equine therapy. That was oh, brilliant. amazing. Yeah. But I did it and it was amazing and oh. I'm continuing to do it just for myself.
2: How incredible. Yeah. Best of luck. It uh, sounds sounds amazing and it's going to be a Thank success. You. As everything you do. Um, uh, well, not everything that all of us do is, but that's the great thing, isn't it, about life? I think uh, the realisation in midlife that actually yeah. you can try an idea and it's it's okay. It's one of the great... It's all about
0: the intention.
2: Actually, on that point, I've been asking listeners to tell me their midpoint moments, the things where they knew they were kind of in the midlife. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Tanya Tweedy says, Well, I found myself turning down the car stereo to see better as I was driving. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I kind of tickled me with that one. And um, and Louise4366
0: says, if I don't want to go somewhere or do something, I just don't do it. I do relate to the turning down the stereo, actually. <laughs> I mean, I did get into the Archers from quite a young age, so I feel like my midlife has been there for a while.
2: You finally um, reached your, per- your perfect age. You, you
0: kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was there a long time ago.
2: Because you were never really, like, the. you weren't like... A, when you were a pop star on Pop Island, you became... You weren't that kind of like young little kiddie pop star. Do you know what I mean? You were kind of you already felt
0: established in your bones almost. I think I I think I was, and maybe a bit of an older soul, maybe. But I, you know, I I'd lived a lot of life. I mean, I was twenty two. Mm. But Gareth seemed really young. Gareth was was eighteen, I think. I mean, that's a big difference. Yeah. Um, is there anything
2: where you've gone, oh, God, this, this makes me kind of, in my midlife, something's happened to me physically, mentally, emotionally?
0: Oh, my gosh, so many <laughs> things. So for work, it was really lovely when people who were younger started getting excited to meet me. So I thought, wow, I must be getting into midlife. And they'll be like, oh, my God, I listened to your, you know, so that's lovely. That an, was an amazing point. Gardening, actually. I mean, I've got more and more into gardening in a big old way. That's definitely
2: yeah, a I, midlife Yeah,
0: thing. that's midlife, isn't it? And my tulips have come up.
2: But they're out now. Your, your tulips are out mm. now. Oh, my tulips aren't. A friend of mine planted 40 for me. Actually, it was 400 when I was my 40th. And they're not there this year, which is a bit disappointing.
0: How long have they been there, though? Because it's about two years, I think, and then you're...
2: OK, this is the seventh year of them being oh, there.
0: Oh, right. So that's the end mm, of them. You've done well. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I've stopped flowering.
0: <laughs> you stopped flowering. <laughs> no, I you haven't. That bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you so much. It's so nice to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. It's
2: strange when you meet somebody on a podcast like this for the very first time especially when it's somebody like Will Young who seems to have been with me for most of my adult life and he's got that calm assuredness about midlife that I find really lovely and a refreshing lack of pop star ego as well I think life's ups and downs have given him wisdom and clarity and anyone who hangs out in their loft with a picture of the Queen is okay by me thank you so much Will for joining us Uh, Nicola Moore is always welcome on Midpoint she does know her stuff doesn't she I love learning more about how we can change the way foods affect us by our neural pathways and we don't have to stick to behaviours that are not positive for us and some may be damaging for us. We can change the way we behave around food. Today's episode is of course sponsored by Solgar. They've got 300 products, I've told you this, and they bear the hallmark of the gold label distributed in over 60 countries around the globe. So check out their website and use The Midpoint for 30% off. That is The Midpoint. That's your code. Go have a look. And As always, thank you to Lauren Armstrong-Carter for producing and to you for listening. Um, Without you, there would be no midpoint. And I'm very, very grateful that you hang out with us on this podcast. Speak to you soon. Bye.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.